Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we reran an entire episode from the very earliest days. This week, the third ever Risk episode from November 3rd of 2009. It's an episode we call, Why Did I Do That? Part 2. I'm going to risk something diabolical. I'm going to risk something very personal. There will not be any apologizing. I will take a risk. Yes, indeedy, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and our theme this time around is a continuation of our theme last time around. It's called Why Did I Do That? Part 2. Situations where people, you know, blurt something out or make a split-second decision and find themselves like David Byrne asking, how did I get here? Uh, our very first storyteller is Madison Perry. He is in Los Angeles, and he actually records stories for us out there in Los Angeles. So if you're in L.A. and you've got a story to tell, Madison's the man to see. But right now we're going to hear a story from him. We call it The Chapstick Twist. Um, when I was in fifth grade on Valentine's Day, I was on recess and three girls walked up to me in the field and one of them was DJ and DJ had been courting me for the last few weeks. She presented me with a chocolate heart and it was a big chocolate heart. It was probably the the size of a, a fist, like an adult fist. It was very big and it wasn't hollow, it was solid all the way through. It was wrapped in red foil and on the top in, in pink lettering it said, will you be my valentine? And uh, so I looked at them, and, and she was kind of shyly looking away. And her two friends were staring right at me, just grinning ear to ear. And I looked back down at the chocolate, and I don't know why, but I ripped open the foil and proceeded to shove the entire thing into my mouth. Except it was such a big piece of chocolate, it wouldn't really fit. So I just kind of had to gnaw on it, gnaw on it, and, and start to liquefy it so I could continue to push the chocolate heart into my mouth. And they just sat there and watched me while I tried to eat this chocolate. About three-quarters of the way through the chocolate, I realized I wasn't going to be able to finish it. I could barely breathe. I was so clogged up with chocolate. And so I spit it out onto the grass right there. This giant sort of gelatinous loogie came out of my mouth and just a string all the way to the ground. And, and so she, I stood up after spitting out the chocolate, and she looked at me, and she said, So will you go out with me now? And I said, No. And I went and played kickball. So that night, my mom at dinner, as she always did, said, What happened at school today, honey? And I told her that a girl had given me a chocolate heart and asked me if I would be 
boyfriend. She said, oh, that's so cute. What did you say? So I told her no. And my mom said, well, you know, that means you have to give the chocolate back. That's how that works. And I said, I can't. And, and she said, why not? I said, I ate it. And she said, what do you mean? When did you eat it? I said, uh, right after she gave it to me. And so my mom said, L let me get this straight. She gave you the chocolate. You immediately ate it. And then you told her you wouldn't date her? Yeah, that was pretty much how it went, I said. And so she said, she made me promise that I would apologize the next day. So uh, because I thought I knew everything, I th figured I'll solve this. Instead of apologizing, I'll just go out with DJ. That will fix everything. So I, I asked her out, uh, by which I mean I told my friends to tell her friends to tell DJ that I'd go out with her. So we were going out. And so the next day I went to school and uh, so kind of had that nervous feeling to see DJ. And before we got into class, my, my good friend Brian grabbed me and he said, I have something to tell you, but I can't tell you here. Meet me at the soccer field at recess. So at recess, I walked out there with him and uh, we made sure we was alone. He said, I just talked to Michelle last night and she told me DJ at a sleepover party stuck a tube of chapstick in her vagina. And I didn't, I didn't quite know what a vagina was, but I knew that was not good. And, and you know a story like that has to be true. So I immediately decided I have to break up with DJ. So I, I told her we couldn't go out anymore, by which I mean I told my friends to tell her friends to tell her we weren't going out anymore. So that was my first relationship. It lasted about 18 hours, I think. And uh, we didn't say one word to each other. Take a chance, chance. So say the elemental wizard, but there are those who call him Andrew Singer. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Risk. Our next story comes to us from the gorgeous Ophira Eisenberg, a great friend of the show. We call her story Burning Sensation. I am in a VW Rabbit parked outside of a drugstore just outside of uh, Oakland, California, sitting in silence with my boyfriend. And finally he breaks the silence and he turns to me and says, okay, just tell me the truth. Were you with anyone over the last year while you were in Australia? And I say, no, which was a lie. What happened was, I was 17 years old, I was in Calgary, Alberta. Uh, I had planned that after my high school, I was gonna go for an exotic experience for a year traveling in Australia, and I was gonna go alone and be this cool, I thought like half banana boat, like suntan model, half Diane Fossey, like I wanted to be pretty and cool and all these things together. Uh, and just before, I planned this trip for like years, and just before I was about to leave, I met this 24-year-old guy named David who was a jazz musician and wore blazers. <laughs> and I fell in love. I fell very deeply in love like only a 17-year-old can. Like this guy, David, he liked me. 
he lo- he loved me, I think, but I loved him, you know, like too much. Like I would tell him every day how I couldn't believe someone like him would be with someone like me. I almost convinced him that he could do better. <laughs> but I was so into this guy and I was gonna cancel my trip. I was just gonna cancel the whole thing. I didn't care. I just wanted to be with him. And he was like, no, 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 you have to go. You have to have like this experience of a lifetime. And I was like, okay, you're right. I'm gonna have an experience of a lifetime. And I went on my trip to Australia and it was amazing uh, in the sense that I watched all kinds of other people have a lot of fun while I wrote letters to David about how much I missed him and how much I loved him. And I thought, like, for some reason, I don't know why, I thought Australia was going to be an exotic experience. Like, I thought I'd be dancing with Aborigines on the top of Ayers Rock and, you know, walking the song lines. But really, it's just like drinking and barbecuing and sort of perpetual spring break with surfers, you know? And I, I was so restrained in myself because I was in love with this guy and I just wanted to be with him. And nothing really made sense to me there. But on the eighth month of me being on this trip, I saw an ad for a trip to Fraser Island, this island that was rainforest and beach, and you could go on it, and it was supposed to be incredible with lots of wildlife, and I thought, oh, this is my exotic experience. So I got on the Land Rover with other travelers from the hostel, and uh, we went and we got onto this island, and we started driving around, and I was like, oh, this is going to be good, and then we stopped, and they just took out, like, you know, box after box of wine coolers and gin, and I was like, oh, yeah. This is gonna be like everything else. And the guitar came out and everyone started to sing American Pie. And I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna fucking let myself go. So I grabbed a Bacardi Breezer and like went for it, you know? (laughs) And I was drinking and I was having a good time and I was dancing like nobody was watching and they were. And, uh, and, and And just getting wasted and having fun and playing drinking games. And the sun started coming up, and I was trashed, uh, trashed and full of sugar trash. And I went for a walk on the beach, and this sort of guy, like, kind of came and found me, this nameless Brit. And basically, he touched me, and because I was so, like, restrained and saving myself and thinking about this guy, David, I was like... I erupted. I was like, oh my god, someone's touch! And I just went for it, and we started kissing and making out and having sex on the beach, which was disgusting. Uh, I think the drink is better, I'm sure. Um, And then basically passed out. I woke up in the morning in his tent to the smell of like nylon baking and sugary Bacardi like coming, sweating out of my pores and the most smoldering hangover I think I've ever had in my life. And when you have a smoldering hangover at 17, you know, at 35, I know what a hangover is. That was worse. <laughs> and, you know, I woke up and I saw this naked guy there and I was just like, oh my God, I have ruined my entire life. I have cheated on the one person, my one true love. I have cheated. I have ruined anything. I am just another shitty 17-year-old. Like, I'm just a stupid girl. I, I hated myself. I was so disgusted with what I had done, and I ran to the first payphone I found, and I, I called up David, I didn't know what I was gonna say, and he was like, guess what? Before I could say anything, he was like, guess what? I decided I'm gonna come meet you. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I'm gonna fly to LA on your way back, and we're gonna meet in LA and do a road trip back up to Calgary together and get to know each other. What do you think of that? And I was like, yeah, and I thought 
the universe was rewarding me. You know, I thought like, the universe is saying it's all gonna be okay and it's gonna be fine and this is just like stuck in the land down under and nobody cares. So I started my way back home and I was in Auckland. And in Auckland, I realized that I might be pregnant. And I was in full problem solving mode. I was like, I have to deal with this. I'm two days in Auckland. I can do something about this. I need to be with this man. This man is the one for me. We, he, we are meant to be together. And I was like, what am I gonna do? So I grabbed the yellow pages and I went to the family planning section and I found a clinic in Auckland that would offer free testing to New Zealand citizens. So my idea was <laughs> learn the accent. <laughs> learn the accent, walk in there, ask for a test, and before anyone knew any better, I'd have my test and I'd be done. Right? I, I'm terrible with accents. That is the problem. Even when I do my mother's accent, my rest of my family's like, yeah, no, that's not really her. So, but I thought, I can do it. I'm going to learn this accent. I tried. I listened for a day. And then I got up in the morning and went to the clinic and walked in and said, you know, like, oi! Uh, oh, I need a test, as I might be preggers, you know, and, and this nurse showed me to an examination room, and I was like, I'm a genius, and she sat me down and closed the door and said, what, what's going on, we know you're not from here, and I was like, what, and she was like, what's going on, and I was just, I lost it. I started crying and blithering out the whole story about David and the jazz musician, and I fell in love, and I really love him, and he's the one for me, and sex on the beach, and Fraser Island, and I'm not with Aborigines, and what's the fucking problem? And that I thought I might be pregnant. And she gave me a test and said, you're not pregnant, but I think you need to talk to your boyfriend and tell him everything. And I was like, no! No, now that we have this dealt with, like, I am done, I am free, I am moving on, it is over. And she, you know, was like, all right, but I think you should talk to your boyfriend. So I got on the flight to LA, and I was pretty excited. And I got the flight, and there he was in LAX, and it was a reunion, and it was incredible. And we started traveling, driving up the coast, and it was amazing, except for by about the third day of us being together and sleeping together, he said that it hurt when he peed. <laughs> so I said nothing. I pretended I didn't hear anything, and we kept driving. And by about the sixth day, he said, it's getting really bad, and I think we need to go to the drugstore and like just see if there's something I can buy. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where it starts to get a little messy. <laughs> so we drive to the drugstore, He's in there trying to buy some topical ointment or something, and I'm sort of trying to offset his purchase by buying like 17 packs of gum. <laughs> and we're sitting in his VW Rabbit outside the drugstore, silence, because things are not good, you know? And he says, listen, I just need to know, were you with someone else when you were in Australia over that last year? And I'm thinking, man, if I say yes, I mean, it is over. <laughs> Like, this guy is not going to be with me. And th I, I got, I ha he, he doesn't need to know about this. It was just a stupid night. It was just a drunk freak out. Like, it means nothing. So I go, no. And he goes, good, good, good. Because you know what? It's, you know, it's probably just some natural occurring bacteria or something. I don't know. We'll get it dealt with. And he, I'm hearing this thinking, oh, my God, what if it's really serious? What if, what if he goes blind? Like, what if I've done something really horrible? 
So I go, wait, 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 listen, listen to me. Um, I was raped. <laughs> the stupidest thing I have ever said in my entire life. But I thought maybe he'd feel sorry for me, and I thought that way I wouldn't have to claim responsibility. But of course, he lost it. He was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he was livid. He was like, what do you mean? What, do you, what, what happened? What happened? Did you go to the police? Oh my God, we need to take you to a hospital. What the fuck happened? And I start telling him the story of Fraser Island, sort of exaggerating different parts to sort of fit with this idea that I was raped. And I'm telling the story and he stops me and he looks at me and he goes, you're lying. And I was like, what? He goes, you're lying. I'm like, how dare you say that to someone who was raped? <laughs> and he's like, no, you're lying. What happened? And I was like, um, well, I was a little drunk. And he's like, you were a little drunk? He goes, oh, Ophira, I cannot believe you. I cannot believe that first you cheated on me and then you lied about it with rape. And I was like, I had no more cards to play. And he was like, you know, I just, I can't be in love with someone like that. And we still had a week to drive together up the coast in a VW Rabbit. Now, just as a little coda, when I did get home to a Calgary, we broke up and I went to a STD clinic to get tested, of course, because I was the infected body and he had a horrible STD because of me. And, um got the test results back two weeks later, I had nothing. Thank you. <laughs> Poor and lonely Albert, who blacked out on the stairwell, and he broke his femurs falling, so he decided to take a risk. He didn't like the doctors, so he sawed off both his legs, but he bled Oh, Albert, must you break your femurs falling? That's Dan Rosen with the music there. I'm Kevin Allison. Up next is newcomer Ariel Carlin, who shows to us that for the very shy, even the smallest risk can be a very big deal. I think that there are two things that are really important for playing charades. The first is to not be afraid to act out your word in small segments instead of going for the whole thing. And the second and most important is to stay cool. So these are the two strategies I repeated over and over again in my mind as I stood up to partake in history charades, which is a game that my European history class invented during our last week of high school to entertain ourselves after we'd taken our final exam. I'd spent the past four years um, sort of avoiding any activity that in my mind required boldness, like wearing the color red or singing along to songs on the radio. So high school was over and everyone was doing this thing where they decided what their new college selves were going to be like. And I had decided that I was going to stop making little everyday things seem like huge earth shattering embarrassments. 
So when I stood up to play charades and someone called out to me, Ariel, you're playing? I just nodded super casually and walked to the front of the classroom like it was no big deal. So I drew a piece of paper out of a hat to find out what historical event I would be acting out for my team to guess, and I got World War I. This was awesome because World War I was huge. Everybody knew what that was. It was going to be really easy. Um, But I decided to stick with my strategy of acting it out piece by piece, and I thought that what I would have to do is get my team to guess the word war, and then they would be able to get the full phrase. So, how to embody war. My mind just went completely blank, and the only thing I could think to do was a sort of abstract expression of the concept of war by crossing my arms in front of my body to form an X. So I did this over and over again, making an X figure and turning from side to side so that everyone in the classroom could see what I was doing, but nobody was getting it. Finally, people just started directly speaking to me while I was up there and saying, you know what? Um, We're obviously not understanding what you're trying to get across with this. Why don't you do something else? But I had nothing else. So I thought that my best strategy, not for winning the game of charades, but for seeming really casual, would be to just keep doing this X thing that I'd already started until I ran out of time. Somehow I actually still had a lot of time left in my turn. And I just kept standing there making an X figure while my teammates begged me to do something different. Finally, my turn ended, and I tried to just slink back to my desk, and I thought that would be the end of it. But people, even people who I didn't really know, were coming up to me all day um, and bringing up this game of charades. And especially since it was people who I didn't know well, I knew that meant that people were talking about it with each other, and it was just spreading across the school, like high school gossip, but about this charades game. So in my physics class, one kid came up to me, and he really knowingly said, hey, I heard, I heard about the charades game. I just walked away. Another girl kept asking me in disbelief, and she had to keep asking me because I wouldn't answer her. Is it true that you made the X symbol to signify war? Um, And I couldn't deal with all these questions and reliving the moment, so I just went and sat by myself in the back of the classroom. And the kid who had originally called out to me when I stood up to play charades in the first place came and sat down next to me. He said, you know everyone's only making a big deal out of it because you're making a big deal out of it. I couldn't believe this because this game of charades was supposed to be my initiation into the world of not making a big deal out of it, but I lost because I will always care. Ariel Carlin. Next up, we have a story by me, which is always just such a treat. This was actually recorded at the show Sacapuntus at the Bowery Poetry Club. It's hosted by Dan Allen and Ray DeVito. And we call this story Barefoot in the Park. Um, I came here in 1988 to go to uh, NYU. I was 18 and I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I had known I was gay from like, you know, day one. I was very aware of it, but in Cincinnati, it's like it doesn't even exist. So I was just terrified for 18 years, and then when I got here, I was really, really horny. (laughs) I was ready to go. So 
I, I didn't know any other gay people or anything like that, and for the longest time, I just didn't wasn't quite sure where to go, what to do. And I was at NYU, and one day I'm walking down a, a hallway and heard some musical theater guys talking about how there's this bar up on the Upper West Side. So this kind of gives you an idea of what a great detective I was. I'm in the middle of Greenwich Village, and I'm tracking rumors that about 80 blocks away, that's where the gay people congregate. Well, anyway, these guys said, they said, oh, it's great, because the Columbia University guys go there. And it, it's very white and collegiate and preppy. Now, now I think this sounds kind of third Reichy, you know? <laughs> but I was from Cincinnati, so I figured I'd feel at home. So I find this place. They had said it's called The Works, and there's a picture outside that shows plumbing. That's how you'll know where you are. So I get on a train, and I go up to, like, West 80th Street, and I had never been up to the Upper West Side. And I go in there, and I find out that they've got this deal where you pay $5, and you can have all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you want all night long. So I was like, Terrific! Well, it, they were totally right. It was very, very good-looking, very white, and very... I, I just felt very intimidated and uncomfortable. So I started drinking this PBR like a madman, like, you know, a, a baby to the tit or something. And eventually, I, I, it was just sad and lonely. I didn't say hello to anybody. I just sat there getting more and more drunk. Finally, I get to a point where I stand up, and I just feel this tidal wave of, like, drunkenness hit me. And I said, oh, my God, I've got to get out of here. So I kind of teeter out like I'm on a unicycle or something. <laughs> and I finally, you know, get my way out of the bar. And I'm breathing the air. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. Let me just walk around a bit to sober up and get my bearings. So I'm kind of walking around, and then I notice this big black void across the street. And I'm looking closer, and I'm like, oh, hey, isn't that Central Park? I wasn't sure if it went up there, but, you know, I figured it looked kind of Central Parky. So I then thought to myself, wait a minute, don't some gay men go into that park at night and have anonymous sexual encounters? They do, in fact. <laughs> but that area is called the Rambles, and I was nowhere at all near there. Even so, I thought, you know, if I'm not near there, who else is going to be in that park at this time of night? I figure if I just walk in and I see other males, they're bound to be on their way there or on their way back, so I'm bound to get something on the way. <laughs> and I had even brought a little, like, a little, like, one, you know, like a little rubber packet of lube. <laughs> I was so prepared that this was going to be the night. So... I, at this point in the story, I have to make a little bit of a caveat because, um, you know, when I tell this story to gay friends, no one blinks an eye, but uh, 
That's because if you're gay, either you have hundreds of anonymous sexual encounters in strange places in the dark, or you have a good friend who does. So you're used to these kind of stories being of the comedy genre. But if you're straight, you're used to these stories coming from the media, and they always end with chloroform and a chainsaw. So I can always feel people thinking, oh my God, don't tell us you were murdered. <laughs> I'm not, I was not murdered. But what I did was I kind of sauntered in there and I walked in for about 10 minutes and finally I was like, oh fuck, I don't see anything. Why don't I just camp out here for a while? So I just kind of plopped myself into a hedge of bushes, <laughs> figuring I would wait to see what happened. Well, about, you know, another 15 minutes go by, and sure enough, I see this figure coming off in the dark. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this, th this will be it. If he sees me in the bushes, he'll surely think, hey, that's another dude. Time to whip our dicks out, right? <laughs> Well, instead, he approaches and he sees me, and he just starts looking at me, and I'm looking at him and thinking, is this the moment? Then I look closer and I can see he's thinking, what the fuck is this bozo doing in the fucking bushes? And then he scurries off. And I can see he's dressed very well with a briefcase. I'm like, no, that's not what you would wear to a forest sex party. <laughs> So now the wind is out of my sails and I'm exhausted and I decided to just lay down for a little while. A great, another great decision. Well, I wake up about an hour, an hour and a half later and I'm starting to get up. And I realize um, that my, my feet feel wet. And, and then I, I realize someone's stolen my shoes. <laughs> And I, I was in the middle of these bushes. I can't believe that anyone happened upon me in the first place, but they absconded with my shoes. <laughs> so now I'm walking uh, out of the park, and I have no idea where I am in the Upper West Side. I'm not even in the same neighborhood I used to be in where the bar was. So I figure, okay, I'll just find myself some train and get on it and, and get this whole thing done with. Because at this point, I figured... The, the evening had started kind of sad, and then it had gotten kind of ridiculous, and now it was kind of at the place that I would call fiasco, you know? <laughs> fiasco, I would say, is when, you know, the bad things that are happening have left cause and effect behind. <laughs> so this was becoming like the apocalypse now of hooking up. So I said, okay, I give up, I give up, I'm gonna get on a train. So I, I found a train and I go down there and, and luckily a train was coming. And I thought, oh, thank God, I won't be waiting down here for an hour. So the train comes and as it's whirring into the station, all of a sudden that same thing happened where I just felt this tidal wave of nausea hit me. And I'm like, oh no, the night is catching up with me again. Well, the train comes to a stop and I just had to kind of lean on it for a second to get my bearings. And then the door opens, and I just exploded with vomit into the train. And there's about eight people on the train, and they're all like going like this. And they're looking at me like, what 
fuck? Who vomits into the train? Who waits for it to arrive, waits for the doors to open, and then lets her rip? I was so terrified of having to wait another hour or whatever that I was like, oh, fuck it, fuck it, I gotta get on this train. So I jumped on, momentarily forgetting that I'm in my socks, and it's very wet down there. So the next thing I know, I'm slipping, my feet are like at my shoulder's length, and I just go down like a cannonball right in my own puddle of vomit. And everyone is now at the other end of the car. And they're looking at me and I, I just felt like, okay, that's the cherry on top. This evening has got to be over. So I looked at everyone at the other end of the train and I just started waving. <laughs> like, like, hello and good night. Thank you very much. it for this episode of risk keep coming back and spread the word risk is created and hosted by me kevin allison produced by michelle walson our sound engineer is nick montalbano our story editor is lee manansala our associate producers are emily altman timothy meehan and madison perry and remember what the new guineans say about risk stomach is like helicopter our story editor, editor, <laughs> <laughs>